the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that truly matters. Amidst the long overdue reckoning with systemic racism in the U.S. and globally has arisen an area of study and interest that focuses on the lives of Black people and seeks to more fully share a totality of Black experience. Acknowledgement and appreciation of Black joy comes to mind. So does the idea that Blackness informs so many parts of our culture and our world. Today, we're specifically talking about Black masculinity. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Jordana Matlin. Jordana is a sociologist researching race and belonging in Africa and the African diaspora. She also studies the ways that Blackness as a signifier and the intersection of Blackness with gender, class, and national identity illuminates our understanding of the world. Her book, A Man Among Other Men, The Long Crisis of Black Masculinity in Racial Capitalism, currently is under contract. Jordana, thank you for joining Big World. Thank you so much for having me, Kay. Jordana, in your work, you showcase that when individual Black men garner great wealth or celebrity status, they become performing commodities in popular culture. For example, in a Boston Review article of yours, you state that, quote, Michael Jordan's repurposing as a commodity, one aimed at compelling consumption by other Black men, renders his remarkable athleticism a secondary to his power as a commercial object, end quote. And first of all, what does it mean to commodify someone? And why do you think such commodification of Black men like Jordan occurs? Thank you for that question. So, you know, why, why do we commodify people? Commercial objects sell. Right. And and ultimately, when we look at not just sports, but any level of performance on the level of the individual, the team, entire leagues, this is about how we can sell things, right? How we can commodify sport, how we can commodify talent, specifically with black men. What what is significant for for the work that I'm doing and the arguments I'm making is that commodification has a deeper history when it comes to to blackness. And so blackness itself is an identity that emerged from the slave economy. Blackness is, is what, or, or was a form of flattening the, the diversity uh, and, and the humanity, in fact, of what it meant to be African with, with contact um, between European slave traders and, and, and Africans. There was a huge amount of diversity on the continent. There was a huge amount of history, a huge amount of culture. And how do you legitimize that you are rendering these human beings slaves is you erase all of that. And this is something that took centuries to do, but in its place, it, it became black that diversity of what it meant to be African became black. That was an erasure that was in the purpose of commodification. So that commodification, that's that's really important when it becomes this kind of like ingrained register of, of what blackness is. And another point to, to consider is that because of this kind of negating effect that that blackness had, and in just quite simply the role that that slaves um, had in the economy, and then after manumission, the role that black people have had, it's been one of marginality. To for for a black man to have a 
uh, a good job, one that brought status, one that brought dignity, one that brought uh, a good income. That was something that was just quite, quite simply shut out from the traditional wage um, economy. Athletes, performers, these identities that have kind of stood outside of this kind of like traditional means of income have always been outsized for Black men. This was something, this was a way to become a breadwinner, a producer and a provider in a way that, you know, working as, as a, a cleaner in a, or, or as a porter at a hotel, these were the other jobs that were available to Black people. You think about that together and then you think about how these registers of, of Black men as these very commodified um, performers, athletes that you see, and there's this long history. Yeah, the greatest basketball player of all time, and that most men, black men, white men, anyone can't do that. But for black men, it it puts this out as this is the only way to be meaningful in this society, and it's so rare that you'll never get it. Yes, absolutely, and and it's something that right. It's not just ideological, but it's also you can see that play out in the modern day with many black communities, uh, black neighborhoods where the the school system is is not good. Kind of like the classical idea of the inner city neighborhood that, that doesn't have the funding, that doesn't have the budget for public services, right? There becomes this idea that the only way to succeed is outside, but there's also kind of a realistic fact that there's not a lot of other opportunities, right? That you have to be almost equally remarkable to get into a good university um, as, as you would to, to get into a, a good basketball program. Right. And Jordana, you've done a lot of your research in Cote d'Ivoire. And during your research in Abidjan, Cote d'Ivoire, you spoke with male mobile street vendors, and they identified with Black male celebrities that rose from difficult circumstances to global renown. And the late uh, rapper Tupac Shakur, for example, comes to mind. How did or do global media depictions of Black American artists impact how the Abidjan vendors viewed their roles as men? Abidjan was known for a long time as the Paris of West Africa. And that's significant because it was a place where breadwinner norms, the, the kind of like what it meant to be modern and urban in a, in a global imaginary were very strong. It was a very kind of strong neo-colonial state after independence was achieved in 1960. And it was it was considered the Ivoirian miracle. There was this term called Evoyue that I write about. And Evoyue, quite it's literally translated from the French as evolved. And it was a designation for a type of man. And this was in French and Belgian, uh, West Africa. So to be Evoyue, to be evolved, was a category that had certain rights and entitlements that allowed you to put your child in the French school, that allowed you to live in certain areas that were the settler city, that had good infrastructure, that had plumbing, um, that had potable water. This was actually quite tightly linked to your ability to live well. The first point of entry to Evoyue um, identity, and I write about Evoyue masculinity, was wage labor to, to basically be in the formal regulated economy. This was never the norm. This was only a very privileged elite, but it became normative. It became aspirational and it became an expectation of what a real man is. And so uh, street vendors, this was work that people did if they had no jobs, and you were dealing with an economy where 75% of work wasn't, it was informal. And so these men 
were really at, at a loss because there was this normative idea of what it was to be a real man that was tied to wage labor and very strongly in Abidjan vis-a-vis other countries in West Africa. What I would hear every time I would ask a man, for example, if he was married or not, and every single Ivorian who I did field work with um, would give me the same response, which was, je n'ai pas les moyens. I don't have the means. I, I don't marry because I don't have the means. And they would say, what I do is not real work. They would reject that this was a job. W- what it did was it left them in kind of permanent junior status, um, a social junior status. They weren't real men because to be a real man, they were supposed to marry. They were supposed to have children. They were supposed to pass along their name, their legacy. They were searching for for other ways to to identify. And here were men who, who were like them in a lot of ways, right? Who often came from marginal circumstances and who had risen to global renown. And this was something that excluded from their own um, society. They looked globally. You certainly saw plenty of local musicians, um, local athletes who had gone on to play for European teams, um, uh, you know, uh, soccer, football, as they would call it. And so it wasn't only Americans, right? It was it was these kinds of global personalities, but but all ways that just like I was describing for you know many inner city communities that that don't have um, the opportunities and they don't have good enough school. They don't have, you know, other ways that that they can get out. This was the same for these men. Um, It was it was, you know, as improbable. Maybe it wasn't realistic, but it was as improbable as being able to find salaried work, which was really through connections and, you know, a certain education level and, and these things anyway. There is a patriarchal idea that the sole measure of a man is his capacity to earn money. And this is, of course, an idea that harms men and women uh, globally, but specifically for our conversation, how does this idea that a man is defined by whether or not he can earn money, how does this impact Black men across the African diaspora worldwide? And how has this idea played a role in what you deem a crisis of Black masculinity? Before I had conducted my fieldwork in Abidjan, I had actually um, received my undergraduate degree in urban studies based in the U.S. And so I studied these kinds of tropes of the inner city and, and inner city poverty. And so when I came to Abidjan, I was struck by how much of the conversations were the same. How much of the conversations about marginality, about men who weren't marrying, about um, absent fatherhood, uh, this this idea of this crisis of masculinity just kept coming up. And it came up in ways that were strikingly similar to what I was seeing in in urban American um, sociology. What it led me to do was think larger about how we can construct this as kind of a, a theoretical framework of the the marginal position of blackness in the global economy. And so obviously that's different in urban Africa than it is in, in urban America. This patriarchal idea of money making the man, it's interesting because it's it's a little bit paradoxical. That I think is actually a quote that I use from, from Bell Hooks, who's a, a famous black feminist. So... What she talks about in in that context is that this was actually an opening. So, you know, if you have this idea of an evil UA and a civil servant as being the only kind of dignified man or the breadwinner, right, this kind of traditional um, wage laborer, uh, proletariat or, or middle class bourgeoisie even as being the ideal kind of man, opening it up to just money 
when she discusses this, she talks about gangster culture as being opening up, right? That the, the illicit economy is a way for, for people then to be men, that if you can just make money, that makes you a man. So it's actually something that becomes democratized, if you will, on an individual level, not on the structural level. You, you can't actually separate capitalism um, from racism, the way it's been founded, the way it's been established materially and ideologically. And so when we think about it that way, and then we see that you, you, know, you have the Michael Jordans, you have the Jay-Zs, you have in Cote d'Ivoire, the Didier Drogba, um, who's a, a famous uh, soccer player, they can make it. But structurally, Black men are not making it. Structurally, they are still marginalized, and we don't see that changing. That's one point. And then the, the second point that's, that's introducing the, um, the gender literature is that Black men are, are Black and male, and that many see liberation as, as equal access to patriarchy. Not, again, questioning these these structures that are inherently dispossessing. You mentioned women, but also of other Black men. But just if I get mine and I'm able to assume that patriarchal role, then the system as it is, the structures as they are, right, of, of global capitalism that are dependent on some form of dispossession, those will remain unchanged. Jordana Motlin, it's time to take five. This is when you, our guest, get to blue sky it and change the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. What are five things you would do to disassociate Black masculinity from crisis? All right. So the first thing that I would address is the male breadwinner role. Uh, so if so, that would be disassociating masculinity itself from producer provider norms. The second, and and this is somewhat related, is achieving gender parity, right? That that just small little thing. So to degender the material conditions for being and social registers of worth. The third thing is racial parity, another small small change in the world. Um, address the material conditions that perpetuate the exploitability and excludability of blackness. The fourth is actually thinking even more broadly about worker rights and protections. So make the economy work for people rather than people working for the economy. This is a domestic and an international effort that involves shifts in government regulations of capital, the role of global financial institutions, um, certainly not to be part of the problem, but actually part of the solution. Uh, and the fifth, which is a little bit uh, separate from, from the, the four that I mentioned before, is the role of advertising. So how value or how, how, how we make value accord to certain professions has so much to do with, with what the media has to say. Um, and so how can we disseminate different types of images, different types of ideal masculinities that in, influence um, hugely the things that people want to be, that they aspire to? Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Jordana, words matter, and I know words are really important to you and the, the work that you do and how we use language matters quite a lot. You've used the word crisis when you're describing this crisis in Black masculinity in quote marks or scare quotes, as they're sometimes called. And I was just curious, why have you done this? Why have you set that off that way? What does that mean when you do that? 
there is a real crisis, right? In in that um, you do have a form of of dispossession. You do have right this this long entrenched, but crisis also gives a, a sense of temporality, like a fire. If we can just put it out, we'll be good. Yeah. And, and this is something that is entrenched, right? It, and, and so the, the subtitle of my book is The Long Crisis of Black Masculinity and Racial Capitalism. And that's to indicate that just that incorporation of blackness that I mentioned in the beginning from the slave economy, that was already a crisis, right? And so it's always been a crisis. The kind of ideological point, and this is actually drawing from a well-known anthropologist, uh, Janet Reutemann, who, who studies urban Africa and, and crisis. She writes in, in one article that crisis implies a telos, this teleological idea that there is a progress, that there is something that we're aspiring to. And so to use the, the scare quotes is to say, well, should we be aspiring to patriarchy, right? Like the crisis of black men is that blackness and the masculinity don't work well together um, in that um, this assumption about privilege, masculine male entitlement uh, up against the, the marginalization that black people have faced so long. When you, these identities clash, it's, it's about um, black men not being able to achieve that kind of like dominant patriarchy that that white men have. But should we be aspiring to that? Is there a way that we can actually imagine a world where men are assumed to be dominant, that money doesn't have to make the man? Jordana, on a slightly lighter note, I always envision academic research as something fairly circumscribed with maybe not a lot of room for creativity in the day-to-day. However, during your time in Abidjan, you recorded two songs with a former street vendor and your research assistants, which sounds, I have to say, like more fun than academics are supposed to have. So what was that experience like? First of all, how did you come to do that? And what was that like? Sure. So, you know, fun if, if you're not shy, <laughs> um, because then I was also performing for performing with them on stages. And, and I mean, oh, I, wow. I even okay. caught myself up just saying that being able to enunciate it right in a podcast. It was very awkward for me. There's a joke kind of in sociology circles that ethnographers are supposed to be the cool people. Um, <laughs> so more than than the other, you know, methodologies, you know, because we have to put ourselves out there in mm-hmm. in a way that people doing certainly quantitative field work don't necessarily have to do. And when I arrived in the field, I actually started playing capoeira, which I played in California when I was in grad school. And that's an Afro-Brazilian martial art. And it was a big part of my life. And so I I joined a a school there and I met another capoeirista who had friends who were these these, um, aspiring hip hop artists. And often with ethnographers, you have kind of the, the insider, the person who who you know becomes kind of like your closest informant, and so so my research assistants and informants uh, were Tino and MC, and those were their their stage names. There were a lot of ways that I influenced um, their worlds. For them, what they wanted to extract, I was extracting knowledge from them, and they wanted actually to be able to perform with me and to record because there was cultural capital in my ability to speak English, right? And, and to be able to write lyrics and, and things like that. And so for them, it was, you know, they were very um, ardent about we have to perform, we have to, or we have to practice, we have to do all this. And we did um, record a song, which, I mean, I could go into detail about that, but it was all very fast um, in, in a studio and kind of like an outer periphery, which had its own, you know, local renowned artists. 
for them, it was it was a really big deal. I mean, so the the street vendor who is actually the one person I'm I'm still in touch with um, on a regular basis uh, from from my field work. He was kind of tell, had a, a classic story of of disappointment up to that point in his life. He had been um, abandoned from his family. Uh, his his mother had had passed away when he was a, a child, and he was kicked out of his home. He was not able to finish his education because there was a civil war going on when I was there and he was from the North, which became the rebel capital. So all of these disappointments um, that he'd faced in his life, and here was a, a record, right? Here was quite literally a record that he was able to have to, and, and hold and possess of something that he'd accomplished. And, and then for Tino and MC, you know, this was a way to make um, real kind of their their ambitions of being artists, right? They were artists um, when they recorded. They were artists when they performed. And Jordana, last question. I think there's a rule that we have to ask about 2020 whenever we do any kind of interview now. I think we're going to be doing that for a number of years. So 2020, it's left a lot of people shell-shocked for good reasons. It's also spurred a level of activism not seen in the U.S. in many decades. It's been activism aimed at redressing foundational systemic racism in the U.S. And in your opinion, looking forward and from your vantage point as a scholar studying Black masculinity, what does success look like for this generation of activists? The first thing I'll say is that, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? These these struggles have been ongoing ever since that first African was kidnapped, right? There have been slave revolts, there have been uprisings, and and much of the kind of dominant historical narrative has acted to try to silence those and to suppress those. So a lot of the work that we do, as as I feel like as academics, that's urgent, is actually recovering um, um, different stories. And so in that sense, you know, um, I I feel like a lot of the the activists are are fighting for the same thing that, (laughs) right, we've been fighting for for forever. Um, for for equality, right? Equal opportunities, uh, dignity, human dignity. But in this generation, the the Black Lives Matter movement. This was actually something also, right? There's there's a shorter history, but it's not from 2020, right? It's it's been going on for for several years, and and what I'll draw attention to that of this generation of activists and and the platform for for Black Lives Matter is that and and, and the leadership is that it is hugely intersectional, right? Um, and, and that's something that's really significant that you had um, maybe prior movements where uh, it was easy, for example, to confuse uh, black liberation for for the equal access to patriarchy, right? And there there may have been a silencing of the needs of black women. Uh, the Movement for Black Lives uh, platform is... The, the the demands they make are are really for uplift uplifting conditions for everyone and when you had the labor movement uh, earlier in the 20th century that uh, pushed aside the needs of, of black workers right the new deal was a uh, a racialized new deal uh, black people um, black workers were largely excluded um, it, it wrote out of uh, the new deal the uh, uh, farmers domestic workers right we certainly see now that the essential workers the people on the forefront these are feminized jobs these are racialized jobs and so um, the that attention 
attention to, to the intersectional dimensions that we can uplift everybody when we pay attention to these needs um, are actually so urgent. And, and so, yes, a, an intersectional movement for, for future generations, I, I think, is really maybe the key thing that I would say, but also to emphasize that, you know, these, these struggles aren't new. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't want to say I'm happy that, that they've been getting this attention because obviously the reason they've gotten these, uh, this attention is, is because of tragedy. And, and certainly I, I do not think that we would have seen the same level of, um, enragement and, and global activism if you didn't have so many people who were pent up from being in lockdown and from uh, losing their jobs and, you know, not being able to, to be at work so they could be on the streets, right? So there were conditions that were already tragic beyond the, um, the, the horrible, um, uh, killing of, of George Floyd, right? That these were, this was within a backdrop of, of a huge loss of life for, for black and Latinx populations, indigenous. Um, so, so yeah. Jordana, thank you for joining Big World to talk about Black masculinity. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Kay. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is available on our website, on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you'll leave us a good rating or a review, it'll be like finding out your favorite book has a sequel and it's actually good. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time. <laughs>